Today's episode of Market Talk is brought to you by Growmark FS. Keeping up with the latest in ag is a challenge, to say the least, but there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic grain and energy solutions bored of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Market Talk as we broadcast live today from the United Soybean Board February meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us and making us part of your day today. I am your host, Jesse Allen. Always a pleasure to be here. We have a busy show on tap for you. In just a moment, we're going to talk with the new chair of the United Soybean Board, Megan Kaiser. She is going to join us. We're also going to talk markets with Mac Marshall of the United Soybean Board. We'll get market analysis. We'll be joined remotely by our good friend Brian Doherty of Total Farm Market marketing up in Wisconsin to give us a rundown of the market trade. That and much more on tap here as we again broadcast live from the United Soybean Board meeting in Nashville, Tennessee here today on Market Talk. Kicking things off, as I mentioned, the uh, new chair of the United Soybean Board, Megan Kaiser, and she is from Missouri. Megan, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jesse. I appreciate the time, and I know you guys very busy here during this week in Nashville. Uh, general session going on today. You guys have a lot of meetings, really looking at kind of the vision, I know, of the United Soybean Board here for the next uh, couple of years ahead. Just walk us through some of the things you guys are working on here during the meeting this week in Nashville just to start. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, we have a 77-member board of directors. Wow. That's 77 farmer leaders from all over the country representing uh, 515,000 soybean farmers in the United States. So, yeah, we, we have a long meeting, really. Uh, we started with committee meetings on Tuesday. Yesterday, we got market intelligence reports from our staff, um, kind of insights updates on where some of our, our big launch initiatives of this strategic plan are. And then we spent the afternoon discussing in our, in our uh, we call them work groups, but basically our committees. And those committees are focused on innovation and technology, um, uh, health and nutrition, and also infrastructure and connectivity are our three main priority areas. And then we kind of break out and focus on supply and demand. And so when we're talking about supply, we're thinking about things on farm, uh, tools that we need. So in health and nutrition, an example would be looking at soil and plant health and nutrition. And then on the demand side, we're looking at animal and human health and nutrition. So then today we're in our general session uh, where we're getting reports from all of our committees coming in and making sure the entire board 77 members. I can't say it enough. It's so many people. Uh, but it really makes, you know, some, some folks say, why, why have so many? We're a big country with yes. a very diverse agriculture um, throughout, you know, even in my own state, we have a lot of agricultural diversity. And so when you spread that out, we have so many different perspectives, opportunities and challenges that having that many voices come together and discuss and ideas for the future of the soy industry 
um, and, and then share it and make sure we're all on the same page. Well, and perspectives and ideas, and you mentioned it, I mean, you know, a soybean grower in, say, Maryland or, you know, somewhere else might be different than a soybean grower in Missouri. So those different perspectives, as you look at the various challenges, various opportunities when it comes to high-quality soybeans grown here in the U.S., I think it's, it's very important to have all those perspectives together in the same room to talk about it here this week. Absolutely. I, we had a farmer from Colorado stand up and say, you know, I don't have any pest or, uh, you know, fungus problems because mm-hmm. I don't have humidity. And I thought uh, the farmer from Mississippi was going to fall out of his chair. <laughs> you know, it's completely opposite. And yet here we are together uh, coming up with, with good ideas. Well, I'm sure a lot of discussions and conversation as well, just about where things are going in regards to the soybean industry. I know we've heard a lot of talk about things like renewable diesel and the expanded crush, et cetera. I'm sure topics like that and other topics surrounding, you know, pest pressures and more are all things that you guys are probably hearing maybe in some of the side conversations as well here during uh, the February meeting. The hallway talk is always an important part of our in-person meetings. The, um, you know, our mission and our vision is um, partnering uh, for sustainable soy solutions for every life, every day. And so when we think about that, it's not just in my life as a farmer, it's in my life as a consumer, in my life as a mom, um, in my life as, as a community member. And so when I think of it in those terms, it's not only the research of, you know, unbiased information utilization of tools for farmers to be able to say, you know, do these biologicals work? Let's compare. Mm -hmm. Um, These are new technologies and it's a little bit confusing. Help us sort through those things. When I think about it from a a consumer standpoint, um, we're thinking about, you know, the soy and the asphalt, the the tires on my car, um, even in the soles of our running shoes with Skechers using Goodyear uh, (laughs) rubber on... It, it's incredible because we're we're really supplying a green alternative, and also uh, it's, it's having a, a positive impact for our rural communities. Yeah, you mentioned a few things there that I'm sure you are very excited about working on. As you think about your vision as chair for the United Soybean Board here this year and beyond, what are some of the things that you are really focused on that you want to help you know work with folks here in USB to kind of push forward as an agenda? Well, my number one focus as chair is to make sure that everybody on the board has the opportunity to make sure that their voice is heard and that their perspective is brought to the table because they represent a whole plethora of people mm-hmm. at home too. Um, so that's that's how I see my role is just to make sure everybody else can fly. But as we look at what's what's the vision of the United Soybean Board, it, it again comes back to every life every day and thinking about the opportunities that oil is, you know, biodiesel was actually a checkoff investment um, 30 years ago. And it really framed us up for this moment today where we have aviation fuel, um, sustainable aviation fuel. We have uh, renewable diesel. These could be huge opportunities. And it was because of a somewhat high risk innovation investment from the checkoff um, years and years ago. We look at high oleic and mm-hmm. how that's um, a, a transformative investment from, from the checkoff. And then as we kind of look further down the road, what's that next big idea? Five years ago, we were sitting in a work group and they were talking about how straws 
uh, we're really polluting the oceans. And you started to see more paper straws pop up everywhere. Um, I don't know if you have kids. I have a two-year-old and I gave her a smoothie with a paper straw <laughs> and it went bad really quickly. <laughs> and it made me think, um, wow, how great would it be if we had a biodegradable straw? So not that I, this was all my idea or anything, but the work group said, hey, let's see if we can utilize plastics to have biodegradable plastics that hold up long enough so that they don't melt in your drink, uh, but that they don't become a pollution at the you know end mm -hmm. of their use. And so here we are five years later, we now have a soy straw. And so now we're looking at the next steps. How do we get the straws into the hands of, of the consumer? It's really amazing. Just uh, real quick before we wrap up all the investments that you guys do and a lot of those decisions made here during meetings like this, how to spend those checkoff dollars, isn't it? It is, and we have to evaluate. Um, we are able to act and, and leverage so much more when we work collectively through the checkoff than I ever could as an individual farmer. And so we're, we're grateful um, for this opportunity. Definitely. With that, the chair of the United Soybean Board, Megan Kaiser, thanks so much for joining us here today on Market Talk. We appreciate it. Thank you. And coming up next, stick around. We will be talking markets with Mac Marshall. Back with more Market Talk on the way right after this. Market information that matters to you on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on Market Talk as we broadcast live from the United Soybean Board February meeting in Nashville, Mac Marshall, USB's Vice President of Market Intelligence. Mac, good to catch up with you, buddy. How hey, you doing? Always great to see you, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for being here. Appreciate the time. We have uh, plenty to talk about in the markets, and I think just let's get started. We had that February World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates report on Wednesday. You know, that February report, there's always there's not really a lot that changes in that report. We expected it, but couple things of note, I know domestically, we saw a cut to crush. I was a little surprised by that. And then we saw the Argentine numbers uh, come down as well. And we know there's drought issues down there. So, yeah, I think a couple things to reconcile. So one, you know, what, what do you do with the drop and crush? It really just got rolled over into the expected carryout, but it doesn't really change our carryout position. We're still looking pretty tight and went from 210 to 225. So not a lot that we're going to be starting the new marketing year with if, if that holds. Um, and it's really just a slight reduction to crush. But, you know, you said it, the more important, um, you know, I think market moving figure from this report was the cut to Argentine production. Now, their estimate is still substantially higher than what the Post has, which uh, came out last week, says 36 million tons, which uh, you know was pretty steep from the January number of 45 and a half. And you see a 4 million ton cut uh, any any WASI, particularly internationally, and that, that does jump out. So it's it's reflective, um, you know, of the ongoing drought conditions. Um, Argentina has obviously been suffering for a couple of years in a row. The other thing that I noticed is on the international balance sheets. Um, is you know slight uptick in those Brazilian exports. Uh, a lot of that attributable, I think, to Argentina needing to backfill its supply to keep its crush running at a decent capacity. So you know, importing more Brazilian beans than they typically would. Yeah, and I think as far as that goes, watching logistics, I think is going to be a big thing there. How much can Brazil get down the Paraná River to Argentina? Obviously, they're having a few delays with harvest in Brazil. Although we are pretty much expecting pretty much confirmed that they're going to have a record soybean crop. So I think it's just a matter of what can they get down river to Argentina. Which is not something you can take for granted, particularly when you've had a lot of dryness. Um, we ran into this, I think, two years ago, where our 
Parna River was, you know, at very, very low depths, much mm-hmm. like we saw this last year with the Mississippi River, you know, um, it really underscores the need for continued investment in infrastructure and everything that we need to actually bring product to market and help link buyers and sellers. Well, I know as well, thinking about just soybean meal in general, obviously that market has been on fire. Mm-hmm. Even Thursday, you know, up around $10 a ton, pushing back towards that $500 a ton mark in that front month contract. Man, oh man, this whole meal market as a whole is just just screaming higher right now, Mac. It's been it's been fun to watch, but I'm sure it's been a little frustrating to watch for some folks as well. Well, over the last couple of years, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth because we've seen this fundamental shift in that price and value relationship between meal and oil. Mm-hmm. Meal historically carrying 65, 70% of the value and, you know, oil 30 to 35%. Then you get to 2021 and you're closer to, I think, 42, 43% for oil and then 2022, closer to 45%. And then at the last, you know, last month of the year, we have, you know, the announcements that come out about the renewable volume obligations and just objectively saying that's, uh, you know, a little bit different from what, you know, the private sector was certainly expecting and what the level of capital investment would dictate. And following that, you know, we've had kind of this, uh, this shift in the other direction where, you know, those oil prices came down pretty substantially, you know, immediately following that announcement and have, you know, stayed, you know, high 50s since then, you mm-hmm. know, where a couple months ago, we were in the 70s. You've also seen that meal price really come up as well. Um, you know, just to kind of keep that value intact because, you know, whole beans as a whole, I mentioned it earlier, we've got a tight carryout. The world's looking relatively tight, still waiting for this Brazilian crop to come online. But as we look ahead, post-Brazilian harvest, as we look ahead towards new crop futures, yeah, we've got an inverted market and we've got a split between, you know, old crop and new crop, I think about like $1.30 right now, last mm-hmm. I checked. But we're still looking at a really high price environment. And, you know, oil's maybe carrying less of that than it was, you know, four or six months ago. But that that meal fraction is really, really high at the moment. Well, and I think, too, the meal side of the equation, I'm sure this might be some of the side conversations here during the meeting, thinking about our domestic crush capacity, all these different plants that are being built, getting ready to come online, looking out here, you know, end of this year, next year, beyond thinking about the renewable diesel situation and more, you know, I know that's something that we keep hearing about and are excited about. Not quite there yet. It feels like it's going to be a few more months, at least maybe next year before we really see that having an impact here, I think in the U S. Yeah. And I think there's, there's stages to it, right? I have to think about this over a continuum of the last couple of years. So I, I, my orientation in time is at the start of 2021. That's when we, started getting these waves of announcements, not of the crush facilities, but of the renewable diesel facilities. And and when you start to see all those capacity announcements, it ultimately gets up to, hey, we might be doubling the market size as measured by announced capacity from about 3.2 billion gallons to over 6 billion gallons by the end of the decade. Um, That's obviously very exciting. But at that point in time, in early 2021, um, that's great. Anytime you see a new emerging demand channel, for the commodity in which you do business. It's incredibly exciting. But the fact is you don't just grow soybeans and then all of a sudden you've got uh, a biofuel, be it renewable renewable diesel or biodiesel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got all these intermediate steps to actually bring it from field to turn it into uh, energy. And the first thing that needs to be debottlenecked is expanding crush. 
right? I mean, we crush roughly half of our crop now, but if the more oil is going to be consumed in the energy market, we've got to find a way to produce more of it. So it starts with, with more crush. So this whole wave, I mean, I guess it's been chapters or somewhat episodic. And it was the latter half of 2021, we started having these waves of crush announcements that this felt a whole lot more real and less ethereal for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's really underscored by, you know, the players who are actually making those investments. Because it's not just your ADMs or your Bungies. It's your ADM plus Marathon. It's Bungie plus Chevron. It's Phillips 66 plus Shellrock. And it's, it's the integration and coming together of, you know, traditional energy or, you know, extraction energy players in the oil and gas industry and traditional ag, you know, and when you see, you know, these two segments of industry, which have, you know, traditionally not always been aligned, but they're coming together, seeing, you know, a lot of the future promise and making large capital investments in crush expansion. I mean, we're looking at, you know, total private sector investment in excess of $5 billion, just back of the envelope math over, you know, what's been announced. But, you know, to your point, you know, there's still time for, uh, for us to really uncover what's going to unfold here. And, you know, again, going back to that oil point and how we've seen a slide in oil prices over the last two months, um, you know, overall margins remain really strong right now. But as we look forward, you know, two, three years, when margins come down from historical records, and there's still planned crush expansion, does it still look as viable then? So, you know, much like with the renewable diesel, you can't equate announcements with capacity and you can't equate capacity with production. Uh, I, I think the same thing holds true on the crush side. You know, it's, it, it's very, very exciting to see the announced capacity, anything we could be adding, you know, upwards of a third uh, above our existing capacity. So going from, you know, 2.2 billion bushels to, you know, adding another seven and change or 700 and change or, you mm-hmm. know, metric going from 60 million tons, maybe to 80 million tons. Incredibly exciting. But, um, you know, that's some of that's predicated on the economics of today and the economics of two, three years from now. Does that look materially different? So it, it, it's still an open question of where crush will finally land. We will see expansion, but the magnitude, I think, until you have the steel on the ground and uh, until you've got confirmation of what's being done with some of the legacy assets, uh, it's something, it's a moving target. Final question before I let you go. Obviously, busy here during the meeting, having a lot of conversations, a lot of talk about investments and more. Your thoughts on just gathering everybody together here for a busy week uh, during the meeting here in Nashville? Well, it, it is that. It is, a, it is a busy week. It's long days, but they're energizing days. Um, and I think especially after the last couple of years, you know, 2020, even into early 2021, you know, this is what I think our f- maybe fourth board meeting that we've had, you know, post COVID lockdown. Everybody's just so excited to be back together. And I know that that's a common theme throughout any industry, but in farming and agriculture, that face to face where you can actually shake somebody's hand and, you know, discuss these investments in a real way around a table, hear from other farmers from around the country, and then, you know, me as staff help to provide, you know, the best background uh, information possible so that they can make the best decisions. It's just so much easier, more fluid, and honestly, just a hell of a lot more fun when you can do it in person, <laughs> especially in Nashville. Well, and I know it's always great uh, when I get a chance to attend events like this and uh, get to catch up with folks like you. And I appreciate the time here today, Mac, as always. And great to talk with you. I'm sure we always. will talk again real soon. 
I hope so, and much like with the board meeting, I hope we can do that in person again soon. I definitely look forward to that. Vice President of Market Intelligence, Mac Marshall with the United Soybean Board joining us here today on Market Talk. Up next, we'll talk markets more with Brian Doherty at Total Farm Marketing. We'll be back right after this. Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency. So you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, as we take a look at how the market trade wrapped up on Thursday, we'll call it relatively soft, uh, lower action, minus the soybean meal market. That screamed higher again on the day Thursday. Still uh, getting a little bit of a reaction to Wednesday's WASD report, much more. Here to walk through the markets with us, our good friend Brian Doherty, Senior Market Advisor at Total Farm Marketing here today. Brian, good to catch up with you, sir. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Jess, we're doing real well. Uh, maybe not as well as the markets. Uh, kind of disappointing in the in the corn market in particular with the front month coming under some pressure. Um, had USG report uh, this week, so those have been big reports. We saw in January some pretty big surprises on harvested acres, so the the market may have been sort of anticipating maybe we'll see some more. And the way basis levels have been in the U.S., there's you know this underlying sense of what are we missing? What Why is the cash market so strong when exports have been – so slow over the year and uh and so is there just less corn out there or farmers hanging on to it or have they sold a lot to commercials and commercials are hedged on it and the market's holding up so there's a lot of questions that may to be answered but uh today wasn't the most healthy day i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm going to make the argument that the bears uh the bears really didn't get the news they wanted yesterday but the bulls didn't either so all else being equal you got to feed the bull looks like we did not feed the bull today I was going to say, you know, it's we've seen this the last couple of days after a WASDI report. And just as you mentioned, we, we didn't really feed the bull. We The bears didn't really get anything either. Just it feels like there's no no conviction to go one way or another here. Traders are just kind of just dancing around this market right now, Brian. Yeah, it's a really tight range. And the more it, 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 it trades sideways, uh, sort of. And I know from sitting in the chair of someone who uh, – places orders that the market just doesn't seem to have a lot of new news or conviction for anybody to really take action. So, so the market moves up a little bit. Um, traders likely are selling the rallies and then buying the dips and it's a sideways trade. Ultimately we have to, you know, remind ourselves that from a historical perspective, prices are, are in the higher range that they've seen over the last several decades. And that, that um, if supply increases, there's a likelihood that there could be additional downside potential for price in the future. Now, I know on the WASDI report, we did see a cut to domestic crush. And I know we have the, uh, as well, the Argentine concerns with their crop. Uh, the one market that stood out to me on Thursday was that bean meal market screaming higher again. Uh, was that maybe a delayed reaction to some of what we saw on, on Wednesday's report? Was there something else underlying in that market that you saw on Thursday that caused the big move to the upside? I don't think there's anything underlying the market 
different. What it reminds us is that supplies of soybean meal are not only uh, snug, but they're expected to remain snug for some time. And if the U.S. is crushing beans at a favorable pace to develop uh, or to crush beans, the opposite then is on the other side of that coin is oil. And that's been a very, let's say, sluggish market, sluggish to sideways. So it's a different story than a year ago. If you might recall, we were talking a year ago almost every week about tight world vegetable oil supplies. And, you know, the world's got some struggle with that, especially with drought in Brazil. Last year at this time, we were talking about declining yield potential in Brazilian beans. This year, it's not. That's not the story. And harvest is while delayed, it's coming along. Bean market has kind of a tough road ahead of it. It struggled. It looks a little, to, to my thinking, it looks a little tired because it's it's rallied and falls back. Same thing with corn. Rallies fall back. Didn't like the kind of range in corn prices in the close in March. Corn near the low of the day. Um, so meal's still strong, but corn seems at best sideways. Soybeans appear sideways, unable to really crack higher and, and put some enthusiasm in the marketplace. Um, so I'll finish up on the bean saying that with that being said, and I'd say the same thing in corn. The theme that I I want to um, sort of relate what I've heard from producers, and it's just, you know, statistically, don't take it to the bank. It's not a good representation. Uh, you're your stats teacher would tell you that in college, <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> in my conversations with producers, um, it, it seems like they have been probably because price is higher, a little further ahead with sales this year. And so when we get some up in the market, it seems like they're rewarding that. On that corn market, I know you mentioned exports a little bit ago. I know corn exports on the weekly report near the high end of expectations. But then again, I look at the marketing year to date still lagging uh, this corn market. I'm a little concerned with just how range bound this corn market has been, Brian. What's your thoughts, what you're seeing uh, here throughout the corn trade a little bit more? Yeah, great question. Good observation on the exports. Um, so t today's figure at 45.7 million, not a poor number. The last week, I, I believe the number was 62 million. I know it was north of 60 million. So it's still down from last week. And that leaves that kind of that concern that, well, we had one really good week and now we're kind of back to a mediocre week. But year to date, looks like cumulative sales, 1 billion, 54 million. And last year at this time, we were right at 1.8. So still lagging last year considerably. And again, I, I, I want to highlight that that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And what I mean by the whole story is that export sales, think about it, that somebody buying a high price product. So if they feel there's a chance for more supply later, and they're paying a high price now, you're likely to see less upfront buying. So, so the last two weeks may be reflecting that as countries need more inventory, and it's a while before Brazil can really supply uh, their buyers, um, we might see continued exports and those export numbers move higher. Yet at current prices, the question whether or not that's enough unless they're just really stellar numbers and we start seeing on a weekly basis, let's say 80 or 100 million or some some large numbers like that that we just have not seen this year at all. That's really the disappointing uh, part of the whole export activity is we didn't see the front load of big numbers and big sales. And that's what high prices do. They create a different behavior in buying. It's no different than you. If you're buying something that's cheap, you might buy a lot ahead, especially if you think the price can go up. If it's expensive, you really buy probably what you need and then see what next week brings and continue along that path. 
Brian, I'd love to get your perspective on this. I know in front of us now, we'll have a March WASD report. We have the acreage intentions coming up as well. I think about spring planting here in the U.S. is right around the corner. A lot of talk what that acreage battle is going to be, corn, beans, spring wheat, et cetera. Um, we look at fertilizer prices. That's going to be a big part of the equation. I know nat gas has been coming down in price What's your thoughts as we kind of start to get a few weeks out here from thinking about spring planting here and, and just what this acreage battle could look like and how, how it could all play into the markets here moving forward? Yeah, so natural gas prices an ingredient in, in a lot of fertile, on fertilizer uh, down nearly 50% in just about three months. So that's big. And urea prices have been kind of nosediving as well. And so so those who didn't buy ahead are are feeling a little bit more comfort that they'll get things cheaper this spring. I'm not hearing any availability issues. Those who did buy ahead this fall, a lot of farmers that have uh, relayed to me their, their rationale just said, look, we, we made a choice. Uh, and so that puts them in a little bit more of a pickle to probably be defensive new crop prices and, and, and avoid losses more so than maybe the person who hasn't purchased that fertilizer yet. But nonetheless, you're looking at market inputs that appear to be on the way down and consequently longer term probably means less stress to farmers. On the other hand, um, you're not likely to see rents come down this year. You're not likely to see any machinery equipment costs come down. Parts are still hard to come by. So you're getting some segment of the, maybe the input, but it's, it's not across the scale and, and, um, I don't know. His history probably has not been necessarily kind to, let's say, machinery prices all of a sudden declining a lot. Rents can come down, but probably not the machinery and equipment. Brian, how about in that livestock trade on Thursday? It looked uh, kind of steady to lower there. I know we're waiting to see what happens with cash cattle activity. Export sales, beef and pork were okay. Uh, nothing really jumped out at me there. What's your thoughts in the protein sectors we near the end of the week? Well, 160 plus cattle on all the futures contract. Well, at least on the February and April contract, and then you get to October and December, a little bit weaker around 160, a little on 60 in the live cattle contracts. What do we think? Well, we we made this argument that we think from the supply side, um, all else being equal, when you have less cattle, you have less supply, same number of consumers, everybody's buying the same amount. You should have higher prices, right? That puts upward pressure, but with inflation and just general economic concerns and and many consumers saying, well, yeah, maybe I've got a pay raise, but I'm still running behind where I was two years ago or a year ago uh, when you consider inflation. I, I'm always concerned about how demand gradually seeps out of a market. People look for different choices. So that's my concern in, in the live market. We've probably seen that concern echoed in the hog futures lately, how they took a big spill and turnover and that the trade just believes that, hey, high price hogs isn't going to generate higher demand. It looks like we, we got too far. We as in the market got too far over its skis relative to the cash index price. Cash didn't move. Futures had too much premium and pulled that back. And then when we look at the, the, the third kind of leg, I'll call it the dairy industry. Really nice rebound today, 27 to 41 points higher. That's a market that's been beat up pretty hard. Again, anticipating more supply. Traditionally, the dairy industry is one, uh, Jesse, where when prices move lower, human nature kicks in. And what do you do when prices move lower? You work harder. You produce more. So it can, can compound the problem. So it, we've seen that play out a little bit in the most recent uh, couple of 
milk production reports, a uh, few more cows, more efficiency per cow, more production in a shaky economic environment, especially China, our importing countries. Uh, we've seen the, the that come home to, to rest in the futures market with lower lower futures prices. Well, with that, we appreciate the time. Brian Doherty, Total Farm Marketing. You can find him online, totalfarmmarketing.com. Brian, have a great one. We'll talk to you again next week. My pleasure, Jesse. Thank you. Up next, we'll wrap up from the United Soybean Board meeting. Back with more Market Talk right after the break. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on Market Talk as we are continuing our coverage at the United Soybean Board February meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. Steve May is with us. He's the United Soybean Board Director, and he is uh, from Tennessee, about an hour away from Nashville. Steve, great to uh, catch up with you, sir. I hope you're doing well. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the time. And Steve, just to start a little bit, I know uh, you were in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee. Talk about your operation. What do you What do you guys do over there? All right. Uh, I'm a fifth generation farmer. My son farms with me, and he'll be the sixth. He, me, and my wife do the whole operation. You know, we have about 1,400 acres of corn, soybeans. And, uh, you know, we, we no-till everything. Mm-hmm. Everything is planted in river bottoms. I tell everybody we have either have rich river bottom soil or churdy hillsides, which don't grow good grass. <laughs> so we do have we have corn and soybeans, and we have a cattle herd too. So. Okay, fantastic. Well, a very diversified operation it sounds like, and uh, obviously you are part of the United Soybean Board and with the Tennessee Soybean Promotion Board. Let's let's talk about hosting the meeting. Uh, I'm sure great to have everyone here from across the country this week uh, in Nashville to talk about soybeans. Yes, absolutely. You know that's the when I got on this board. The best part of it is meeting other farmers, you know, from across the United States and uh, talking about projects and try to uh, promote soybeans, you know, and it's a very diverse group. I know we were in a meeting yesterday. It was one one farmer had two had two inches of rain since last year. Then another one from Louisiana, he was flooded out. So, like I say, we're the very very diverse and. We try to work all the promotion where it actually helps everybody. Well, and I think about that too, very diverse, but all that collaboration has to be amazing. You know, like you, you alluded to, you you might get a farmer who's in Louisiana versus a soybean farmer from North Dakota. Right. That, I mean, there's going to be different obstacles, different challenges, different things to work on, but that's got to be a great part of having this meeting with all the directors here is just talking through things and finding those solutions that will help and work for everyone. Yeah, it does. And you know, we were at Tennessee, we were very pleased that they were having a meeting here. And I think all the directors have had a enjoyable time here, too. It's a little bit, little of everything to do in Nashville. Definitely is a little <laughs> bit of everything to do in Nashville. What have, uh, what have you heard during the meeting? What are some of the uh, things that have stood out to you that you were excited about? Some of the different initiatives, projects that uh, the board is looking to fund here moving forward? What, what's been some things that have stood out to you? You know, uh, I guess one of our still, the uh, biggest problems we have in Tennessee, and a lot of people do, is the weeds, weed control. You know, we're sure. getting so many 
that are resistant to herbicides and we're having to go different routes doing the cover crops a lot of people are which helps the soil on top of helping mm-hmm. the weeds yeah i would have to think that's you know one great thing obviously in that i think that too plays into the sustainability conversation as well with soil health and i know that's been a a big topic it's always been a topic in agriculture but it feels like it's gotten more and more of a spotlight here in say the last five years steve yeah absolutely the uh, you know the sustainability you know all of us farmers think we're sustainable if we're still in business you know and we try to take care of the soil and the air and the water you know you know, I th- we all consider farmers the the sustainable people. So, mm-hmm. I would have to think too. Uh, probably a lot of excitement here from the United Soybean Board and just in the soybean industry in general when it comes to, you know, the the talk of expanded crush and renewable diesel, biodiesel, et cetera. I know that's been a, a big talking point here as we see more of those plants come online across the country. Right, and you know the. The uh, products that they're coming up with, the soybeans and the oil and the meal, it's just unreal things you wouldn't even think about. You know, mm-hmm. the, they even have the making adhesive to go in the asphalt on the roads. Yep, the Skechers shoes, I know, right. are a big Skechers, topic. Right, tires. Uh, mm-hmm. There is so much that uh, can be done with soybeans. It's, it's just amazing when you think about all the different products that can be derived from a soybean, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and the prices have been good too. So that that definitely helps the farmers out. You know, we can, and because of the inputs, we if we have if we don't have a a good crop and a high price, we're going to be in trouble. Very true. Very true. I know as well. Uh, again, Tennessee Soybean Promotion Board, uh, you're with uh, with them and helping to put on the meeting. And obviously, at a state level on the Tennessee side, I know. You guys do a lot of work within the state here just when it comes to soybeans and, and kind of advancing uh, advancing soybean promotion, for lack of a better term. Right. Yeah, you know, we we do different projects. We, we work with the University of Tennessee. We do a lot of projects with them. You know, even one now, it's the, we have a bad deer problem here, and we're actually working mm-hmm. with one of the, the doctors at UT to – Develop where the leaf doesn't taste good for the deer, and hopefully they won't eat them. <laughs> you know, so, it's, it's yeah. You, you, know, know, it's, you would never think about that being a big issue, but right. man, um, it, it's always interesting the things that that folks can come up with just with a again collaboration and working together, right? That's exactly right. Steve, uh, I appreciate a little bit of your time here during the uh, meeting in Nashville. Thanks for uh, joining us here on Market Talk today, and uh, I wish you all the best, and hopefully we'll talk again in the future. All right. Appreciate it. And again, that is Steve May with the United Soybean Board and with the Tennessee Soybean Promotion Board as well as they are hosting the meeting here uh, in Nashville. And we appreciate Steve's time. We appreciate Mac Marshall from the United Soybean Board as well as USB Chair Megan Kaiser joining us earlier in the show and market analysis today with Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing. We thank all of them for their time here on the show today. That is going to do it for Market Talk here from Nashville. Nashville, the United Soybean Board February meeting. Coming up tomorrow, we will talk markets with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing, and we'll talk about a new pork report from Robble Bank with Christine McCracken. We're out of time. That's going to do it. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Thanks for joining us for Market Talk.
Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency. So you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information.